Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com All right, welcome back to the Outdoor Drive Podcast. We are at episode 101. We just finished off our 100th episode at the WCB studio over there in New Windsor, Illinois. What a great time, man. This is your boy, East Coast Trev, and... This is Steve. Just Steve. Just chilling in the background, man. Kicking it a nickel. Just doing what I do. That's right, man. So excited. Great episode. We had Steph and Trevor on from Alberta getting ready for... uh, they. Well, probably by the time that this thing releases... There will actually be um, some type of yeah, velvet based, on the ground. Based on their bets, they're they're by the time you're hearing this, they're tagged out. We're already scheduling the follow up, so could be interesting. Very, very interesting. Super excited for those guys. Best of luck to them. But before we get to that part, man, I'm super excited to get a hundred out of the way, man. We it was a crazy drive back home. He got stuck for two hours in Ohio, and it wasn't to scout. It was uh, it was because there was a traffic jam. But the funny thing, we were only like 40 minutes from where we should have been to scout. So it, I wish we just found a detour, went and scouted and wasted the time and passed the wreck. Would have been a better use. I think so. I would agree with that. But whatever. We're, we're super excited about that. I can't wait to get to Ohio. That's it. I, has it not just been on your mind? Dude, nonstop. Like I'm literally Ugh. sitting here as the, as the clock's ticking and we're getting closer knowing your season's coming open. You're going to be able to knock that rust off. I'm going to get a couple of weeks beforehand to do the same here, but I'm sitting here going, okay, well, this is how I configured last year. This is what I need to configure for this year. Here's what I want to change and do. Like my mind just sits and strategizes. And I was talking to a guy at work today. He's like, Hey man, you guys going to do any hunt and this? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, fill the freezer in Virginia, but you know, I'm going to, I, I'm not looking for, for antlers until we get to Ohio. So that's kind of where my mind is stuck. That That's where I'm going to do the trophy hunting this year. Yeah. Can't wait, man. Really looking forward to it. Got a ton of stuff. Our good buddy Cody Evans over there in Ohio keeps kicking us back some good stuff and showing us kind of what's going on over there, kind of doing a little bit of pre-scouting for us. So super excited to get on that ground. And, you know, we're we're just chugging along. I can't – speaking of chugging along – 100 episodes, bro. I want to bring it back to that real quick. 100 episodes. So this is 101. Yeah, man. And a lot of big changes coming thanks to Steven. We changed up the intro, if you guys haven't already noticed. Um, huge change on that. We are on TikTok now. We got a little TikTok account going there. Some cool videos and some shorts going on also on our YouTube side. A lot of cool things popping up here and there, man. Make sure that, you know, you're liking, subscribing, both um, our YouTube, our Instagram, our Facebook, um, TikTok. We have the Outdoor Drive Podcast.com, or it's actually the Outdoor Drive.com. Um, you can get on there and it has a little bit of everything, a link to absolutely everything. So make sure to like, subscribe, give us a review, kind of tell everybody what's going on and it'll really help us out in the long run. We'd really appreciate it. So, but me. You know, 
good stuff for sure man and like i said you know we blew through the first 100 we really got our feet wet but i'm telling you right now the next 100 by the time we hit 200 will be a different show it's gonna be insane and not, we're just we're, we're just getting our feet wet man yeah. it's just the beginning so i'm saying is it's not only from the show's perspective but from the back end the business perspective the partnerships the sponsors the deals uh things are fixing to take a a real big jump as far as all of that goes and uh Let's just say, you know, we needed a hundred to prove ourselves and a hundred more will have this thing firing on all cylinders. Honestly, speaking of partners, uh, the people that kind of work with us here, not sponsors, but partners with us. Um, I'm going to just go through the list real quick. Uh, Gator Outdoors, use promo code Outdoor 20, Outdoor Drive 25 on that one. Nor'easter Game Calls, nor'eastergamecalls.com. You can check them out for all your custom calls. Uh, out on the limb mfg.com making all the saddles uh platforms and camera arms check those guys out latitude outdoors they make the method two, the two panel saddle if you guys got any questions reach out to us but it's latitudeoutdoors.com. go on there check it out also check out some videos on our youtube side and then last but not least probably the best of them all uh we're gonna cut the zeus loose with the boys over at zeus broadheads uh website for that one is newerarchery.com they are the home of the zeus so super excited to cut the zeus loose we've we've used them for a while but now we're just kind of working with those guys and um super excited for the season with those guys yeah a lot coming around the bin man that's just the start because i see a, a bright heavy future with those guys going into things so we'll we'll just keep that at that for now Absolutely. And, you know, if you guys haven't checked their stuff out, man, go and check it out. It's definitely worth a check out. A little bit different, but, um, but yeah, man. All right. Well, I'm super excited. Hey, you know what I'm As excited always. about? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm excited to hear about uh, what's going on in the outdoor world. I'm not really sure that we want to hear what's going on in the outdoor world. I, right, wrong, or indifferent, you're fixing to find out. So do me a favor and turn it up. Bringing you the news for the cruise is our good buddy, Mike Salter. Take it away, Mike. Hey, everyone. Mike here with some news for your cruise. We're going to kick this one off in Montana, where wolf hunting is again making headlines. The Fish and Wildlife Commission approved in a 3-2 split decision to set a quota of 450 wolves for the upcoming season, which is almost 40% of the estimated population in the state. Individual quotas were also set for each individual region and those areas will be shut down when quotas are met. Uh, hunters will be able to possess 10 wolf licenses and trappers will have a 10 wolf bag limit and all harvests must be reported within 24 hours. Uh, for trappers, snares have also been approved uh, for throughout the state and for hunters, uh, baiting and night hunting has been approved on private lands. Uh, also in Montana, uh, we saw the Fish and Wildlife Commission approve extending late cow elk hunts to February 15th on public and private lands in 18 hunting districts. This will be the first time that the late hunts will be extended to forest service lands, but uh, wildlife management areas and refuges will remain excluded from that late hunt. So this is a one-year experiment to see if the extension will reduce populations where they are over objective uh, in those hunt areas. So anyone hunting out there, take advantage of this additional opportunity as it might not last. Now off to Washington. 
where the Department of Fish and Wildlife has changed the opening day of forest grouse hunting season from September 1st to September 15th. This decision stems from declining numbers of dusky spruce and rough grouse in the state. Uh, the effort uh, aims at protecting hens with chicks, given that roughly two-thirds of the forest grouse harvested in the first two weeks of September are juveniles hatched that year, and roughly 60% of the remaining third of the harvest are breeding hens. And the ratio for spruce grouse is closer to three-quarters females. Uh, typically, the broods break up in mid-September when juveniles can better care for themselves. And the hope is that shifting the opening of the season will better protect these chicks and breeding hens to increase the populations in the state. Also in Washington, um, anyone who enjoys going clamming will be happy to hear that the Department of Fish and Wildlife announced 62 tentative dates for razor clam digs from mid-September through the end of the year. Last year's season was heavily impacted by high demoic acid levels, but this season is looking good. Uh, so far as acid levels are low and there's good clam abundance. Uh, this has resulted in the department approving an increased limit uh, from 15 to 20 clams uh, for all open beaches as well. So get out there and get them. Uh, now for some promising fishing news. First in New York, where the Department of Environmental Conservation has confirmed the first lake trout reproduction in Lake Erie in more than 60 years. Lake trout were once a top predator in the lake, uh, but commercial fisheries destroyed the population to the point where there were no more trout in 1965. Population restoration began in 1982 uh, with stocking and repressing sea, uh, the invasive sea lampreys in the lake. Now after 60 decades of investments to improve the water quality and habitat, it looks like spawning is naturally occurring and will hopefully help uh, to sustain the fishery for the future. Uh, lastly, we're gonna stop in Michigan where biologists are closing in on a major reintroduction of Arctic grayling to state waters. Uh, while these unique fish are abundant throughout Canada and Alaska, they are only native to Michigan and Montana in the lower 48. Uh, the last known occurrence in Michigan was in the UP in 1936, and over the years, several stocking programs have failed to reestablish establish the species in Michigan. But that might now change thanks to some successful stocking techniques in Montana. Montana has figured out that the fish were missing a key imprinting period early in their development when the grayling absorbs stimuli and smells uh, from the water in the egg stage. This increases the likelihood of the grayling returning to these waters to spawn, and Montana has been transporting eggs from hatcheries to remote uh, site incubators where the eggs can acclimate to the environment. Uh, these sites are simply a bucket that holds the eggs, allowing water to flow through while um, protecting the eggs from predation and washing away. So Michigan is now experimenting with this technique and in addition to the Ausable and Manatee rivers, the Boardman and Maple rivers will be considered for grayling stocking. The ultimate goal is to res restore a self-sustaining population of Arctic grayling within its historic range. And this is pretty exciting given the limited range in the lower 48. And with these new techniques, maybe we will be able to see some, op some fishing opportunities in the future. Uh, which is promising since this is one of my bucket list fish. So hopefully some positives coming out of that in the, ne in the near future. Uh, as always, if you have any news, please send it along. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, reach out to me at Mike Salter on Facebook or bearded underscore bow hunter 21 on Instagram. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. Mr. Micah Salter. So Micah Salter? Micah Salter. And, and a big, big shout out to Mike, man. He's literally been there since before episode one he was in the room for episode one 
and he stuck with us the whole way guys. So give Mike a shout out, man. We appreciate him. Show him your appreciation as well. Cause he, he's been a absolutely irreplaceable part of the show. And I don't think he hears that enough. So no. Mike, we love you, buddy. We really appreciate you, man. And and make sure to reach out to him. Give him your news, man. You know, so the stuff that he comes up with, he comes up with it on his own or you guys reaching out to him, but shoot him a message. Tell him what's going on around in the world, man. It's really important that we help each other and uh, kind of get that stuff out there. But what do you think? Should we uh, turn the key and kind of get this thing underway? Well, it's episode 101, and this kind of is uh, early season 101 for our friends up in Canada. Eh? Hey. Treve. Treve. (laughs) Treve. All right, man. Let's go ahead and roll them on. All right. All right, welcome back to the Outdoor Drive Podcast. We have on Steph and Trevor all the way from Canada. How are you guys? Hey, guys. Doing pretty good. Welcome back, Steph, and we have a new guest, Trevor. Yes, Trevor, I said it. <laughs> we share <laughs> names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't you do a little bit and introduce yourself, Trev, and just kind of tell everyone kind of who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about what you do. Uh, my name is Trevor Manteuffel. i run top of the flyway outfitters up here in Northern Alberta, Canada. Uh, I've been up here for about 20 years now. And uh, for the longest time, we've primarily focused on the waterfall. We've recently uh, jumped into offering bear hunts, whitetail hunts, mule deer hunts. So um, in the wintertime, go down to Arkansas, follow the speckle belly and snow goose migration. So it's full-time outfitting. That's been the gig for me since probably, oh, 2007, 2008 was a part-time taxidermist in there for a while with that. And then uh, had to put that away and pursue the full, full outfitting career. What kind of made you go to doing the big game over the waterfowl now? It's, um, it's basically, it, it, it's not something you can just jump into in Canada, uh, especially in Alberta. It's highly regulated, highly kind of restricted, um, you can't just go be a big game outfitter and go get yourself a deer tag and take anybody out deer hunting. They have, uh, specific numbers of allocations for specific zones. And the only way you can get those is to buy them from an existing outfitter. Uh, downside to that is he can sell them for whatever he wants. There's no face value. So it's low demand or low supply, high demand. So prices are high. Um, we'll get into that in a second, but it's, basically just took a while before we can start scratching a few tags together here and there and had to start small with the bear hunting, um, up in our area, the whitetail and mule deer, it's considered a pretty good trophy area. Um, as far as one of the best areas in Alberta. So real high demand to get, uh, deer tags up here. Um, so it just takes a long time to get, get that established. Um, just getting lucky and finding somebody that wants to part with something like that. Usually somebody has to retire or die. That's about the only way in the game almost. So I was going to say, if you can manage to get someone to part with a tag up there, I mean, you're doing more than 
I've ever been able to pull off. So, <laughs> yeah, even if uh, even when guys do retire, they hold on to their allocations and they just end up renting them and they make quite a bit of money doing that too. So, Jeez. so yeah, just for example, like for us to, you know, everybody wonders why deer hunts in Canada are so expensive. I think the average deer hunt in Alberta, if you want to do it's basically thousand dollars a day that includes your lodging and meals. That's what you can bank on a six or seven day hunt is going to run you six or seven grand. If an outfitter doesn't own his own tag in Alberta, he's probably putting in 2000 to 2,500 bucks just in a lease price for that tag. That's pretty big overhead on a $6,000 ticket. So after expenses and everything, you're, you're lucky to clear 2,500 to three grand at deer hunt. You know, you might, you might make 50% on it. So it's pretty expensive to get into it. If you want to buy your own tag, especially in our, our zone here right now, the going rate is 25,000 Canadian. Wow. $25,000 just to buy a white tailored mule tag. And, but once you own that, that's yours. It's a one-time fee and then you can sell that hunt every year, but you only get one hunter per year on that tag. So it's, you think about that. If you have, you know, in, in our case, a mule deer hunt, I bought a couple mule deer tags about five years ago and they're just paid off now. Now we're finally, this year we would have made a profit on them, but COVID and now we're sitting and waiting, you know? So, wow. That's crazy. That's, that's how it is in the commercial world down here too, with the fishing. Like you can't get a commercial fishing license unless literally somebody dies and then they have right. to sell their boat, their boat and then the the rights to it and so on and so forth. Yeah. Wow. It's a million dollar. Investment. That's crazy how they do that because what do they just not want an over an overabundance of them? Yeah. It's, it's the, the quality is there because there's, there's no limit on the amount of outfitters that there can be in an area. Uh, except for waterfall, they limited it to four outfitters. So like in the two wild manage, wildlife management units I run in, there's four waterfall outfits in each zone, only four. So there's, that means there's only four duck guides. And these zones are probably the size of two or three counties in a state, like average size counties, I would say. So if you can only imagine three, three duck or goose hunting guides in a three, like a tri-county area, that's how tight it is to get into it. The same thing with the deer hunting. There might be 20 guides in one zone, but only 25 or 28 tags. So it could be a lot of guides, but still restricted on the amount of, of numbers of tags issued. That's crazy. And then, but you, can you, without being like outfitter, like, can you just get a tag for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. We, we get our regular tags every year that we have our draw tags and we have our resident tags we can buy over the counter. And then, uh, as far as non-residents coming up to Alberta, you have to come through an outfitter or you can do uh, what they call the hunter host program. Any resident of Alberta can host a non-resident, whether they're from somewhere in Canada or somewhere in the U S and that person can come up. We'll just use the U S as an example, say like me or Steph want a friend that wants to come up and hunt. Um, every three years we can take an American hunting with us. And they can get two big game species tags. You get a whitetail tag and an elk or a whitetail and a moose. Um, mule deer is off limit. So, but then you can just buy the tags over the counter at the non-resident price. So it's the way to get in without going through all the, you know, booking an outfitted hunt. So it's kind of an in for, if you got friends, you can avoid the, the high outfitter fee. So it's kind of another way for them to promote tourism where a lot of people have family members 
it doesn't restrict us from bringing, you know, like uh, on both sides of the family. They can come up and hunt every year with us if they wanted to, even though they're from the States, they're in-laws, they can, they can come up. So. Oh, cause they're legal descent. Yeah. That must make it really nice. You get to see your in-laws every single year. Well, we get to see them, but it's, uh, I don't know. We've, we've, people have had the open invitation. My dad was the last one that came up. That was the first time we went deer hunting together. And, oh, I want to say probably since I was 18. So I was 41 when, so, you know, over 20 years, the first time we went deer hunting together. So that was pretty fun. And he, he shot the first buck that walked out. I just had enough time to put the binoculars on it and say, well, it looks like a decent four by four. Boom. All right. I guess we're done. <laughs> I guess he it's a it decent is. four by four. He said it's going to be 30 below tomorrow. I ain't sitting outside in this shit. <laughs> <laughs> so Trev, you weren't always from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in, born in Winnipeg and Manitoba. My mom's side of the family was from a small town, uh, just Southwest of Winnipeg. Grandpa was a farmer there. And, and so my mom came from a farm family and, uh, dad was from Wisconsin, just outside the Milwaukee area. And he moved up to Canada back in the seventies was a teacher met mom and all his kids were born in Canada. And back in the day, they, uh, they gave out the dual citizenship. So that's kind of where we get our legalized border jumping. Um, didn't have to do a lot of paperwork. We had to stand in line. I remember standing in line in Calgary for a few hours when I was eight years old and they gave us dual citizenship when we moved to the States and now we're legalized border jumpers. It's going yeah, to keep but, us out yeah. from the north. You did it legally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, did it legally. <laughs> Mom and dad were pretty smart there. So that's I'm wild. The only one. All of our immediate family lives in the states now. I'm the, I'm the only one spending full time up here. That that's took crazy. Me a while to start using it, but uh, but I like it. It's probably better that way, right? There's better yeah. hunting up there. There is, yeah, better hunting, but you're. I mean, you're detached from a lot of things too. There's, it's a lot of give and take, you know, I don't like going to the city anyways. So kind of works for both of us. We hate the city. Um, so being out in the middle of nowhere is pretty good. I'm used to driving everywhere The two hour drive. That's nothing. We do two hour drive is standard. So yeah. Like for just a day trip, you know, if you got to go get anything and it requires something out of the norm, you got to, you have to drive. So it's not like being in the States at all. No, no, we're, I mean, we're in a town of like 300 people or so. So it's, um, it's a different life up here. You know, people really live off the land and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of homesteaders and, and folks like that in this area, which is pretty cool. So, so the, so the guiding plays a big part into the life up there for you guys. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. 100% what I've been doing for the last yeah, 12, 13 years, I guess. Wow. So this, on the guiding. So this has really affected you with COVID and so on and so forth. Kind of how long have you guys been down so far with not being able to take in clients since almost the, two years I'm, since wow. closed last March. Yeah. Wow. Canceled our spring bear camp in 2020 and 2021. So yeah. we've missed two spring bear camps. Um, and he's missed, this is going on the second waterfowl season and big game season where this year we do have some Americans that are coming, but it was still like over 80% cancellations. And because of the vaccination requirements and all of the other red tape that you have to get through to get into Canada right now, even some of 
vaccinated hunters chose not to come up because they didn't feel like dealing with, you know, the hassle of crossing the border, doing all the testing and getting back. It's just too much time because it takes, you know, uh, three days to drive up here, or it's going to take you three different planes to get here. You know, we're really far north in Alberta, which is a really huge province. A lot of people don't realize that, but, you know, like land size wise, it's, you know, I don't know, bigger than Texas. I think it's bigger than Texas. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you're not just gonna, you know, drive up here in a day or two, it's going to take you, you know, some time when we go home to the States to visit our parents and stuff, it takes three days, 40 hours of driving plus. So, wow. That's wild. So did, were you able to guide in the United States this year? Yeah. Yep. We had a good season down there in Arkansas. Um, usually we're down there about Thanksgiving time. We didn't go down until after new year's, but, uh, even in December, we had enough clients cancel in December because of COVID related stuff, travel. A lot of it was work. Uh, a lot of people said their jobs flat out said, if you leave the state, you got 10 days off with no pay when you get home. So lots of people were backing out lots of threats from their job, which I, I get it. You know, you got to keep your job. Right. So, um, but, uh, you know, it made a big enough dent that it wasn't even worth us going down for the month of December for eight or nine days of work. So we stayed up and then February, or, uh, January bounced back. And after Christmas, everybody was getting out and we had one of the busiest Januaries we've ever had. It actually made up for the lull in December. So it was pretty good. So you mean the, the flyway wasn't canceled because of COVID? No, 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 <laughs> no that's the bird flu. Yeah. <laughs> the bird flu. Nobody was checking for bird flu at the border. And... <laughs> yeah. They were still, still piling in. Yeah. So yeah. after, after that was done, after our spring snow goose season's done in February down there, took a little break and, um, Borders still closed and they're just teasing us. Like every, there's no talk of it opening. It's they just keep extending it month by month. Every every month on the 20th or 21st, they say, ah, it's closed another month, another month. So when it got to about February or March, we pretty much knew it wasn't going to open in time for us to have a spring bear season. For for that to happen, it would have to open up by third week of April. And uh, so we planned on doing spring snow goose hunts in Alberta. Um, which we haven't had the chance to do because we're always busy doing the bear hunting. But with that, you can only guide the resident hunters. So it was a, a whole new market. It was good. It was received very well and, and had a really good season doing that. But, you know, as, as opposed to having a full bear camp or, or just running some goose hunts for, for 30 days, it's quite a bit difference in income numbers as you're talking, you know, so totally different ballpark, totally different group of clientele totally different price point and but it was enough to keep us through and, you know, make truck payments, make whatever else pay the bills type of thing. So, um, and then that, and that just kept on going through, through the summer where we had the fullest schedule we've ever had booked for our waterfall hunts in the fall. And then once they announced the regulations, it was just a 50% drop off. I mean, they announced the border was opening and people just backed out because they didn't want to deal with it. So, wow. That's I can crazy. check on, I can touch on that a little bit. We'll just get out of that and be done with the COVID stuff. So I don't <laughs> whole, whole time, but we'll get the COVID out of the way. Um, but yeah, like the, the border opened up August 9th for 
travelers from the U.S. to come up. So if anybody's listening, like here are the actual rules. You have to be vaccinated. You can come up if you're not fully vaccinated, vaccinated. fully vaccinated two weeks before you arrive at the border. Um, You can come up without a vaccination, but then you're quarantining for two weeks in a government facility at your own pay. So it's going to cost probably over two grand, maybe three grand. And they tell you where you're staying and you're locked in a room. There's somebody coming and bringing you food. So you're supposed to be in quarantine, but you're relying on somebody else feeding you. Right. So sounds pretty safe. Uh, yeah. So, so you get the vaccine, say you got the vaccine, you're vaccinated two weeks before your travel. Now you got to get a COVID test. You got to have negative COVID test results 72 hours before arriving at the border. If you're flying into Canada, you have to have those results 72 hours before your connecting flight into Canada departs the U S so that could shave however many hours off your flight, two, three, four hours or whatever. So might take a few hours off of that. Um, then once you're in Canada, you can, you got your trip. Um, you could get pop tested at the border. They might do random testing. What happens if your random test comes back positive? Now you're quarantining for two weeks. You know, it's, it's open, but they're trying to scare people. And I'm probably sounding like I'm scaring people, but that's just the way it is. There's everybody knows how accurate these COVID tests are. Right. So you could be tested three days ago and be fine to the border but now you're at customs and they say all right we're going to test one person out of your group and he's positive now he's stuck in canada not going home so that's one of the downsides if you have symptoms if you arrive at the border with symptoms that's one of their other requirements you're supposed to show up vaccinated and asymptomatic so <laughs> if you show up with symptoms now they could say you guess what you're quarantining we're not putting you on a plane to go home you're staying here until we know that you're you're clean and safe and uh, then you have to download the Arrive Canada app, which is another, I think, just another government tracking scam. They make you a government app on your phone, put your travel requirements in, your passport info, all the stuff they gather, gather at the border anyways. And you have that all in there. You have your quarantine plan in effect. Uh, you got everything in there. Uh, then you're supposed to record your symptoms every day, too. They want to know how you're feeling every day. Wow. I'm feeling pissed off. That's about yeah. what I'm yeah. Yeah. You, wonder, you know, wonder why Trevor's all uptight about it. <laughs> yep. No, I know he's getting, he's getting worked up. I can just <laughs> watching it, but really to sum it up, what he's trying to say is on the Canada side of the border, they're basically wearing hazmat suits and this is no lie. And we got stuck in a little nowhere town border town in montana for like 12 days back in the spring 14 days anyways like that's how crazy stuff is at the border so around when they say 72 hours they mean it if you don't follow their guidelines to a t like they're going to do anything they can to prevent you from coming over and even if you're a citizen of Canada or not, like Trevor and uh, myself being a resident, like there's absolutely you. So just make sure you follow the guidelines, answer all the questions, answer their phone calls when they call you every day, report in, do your swabs, your kids, have someone pick them up, whatever. You just have to follow it if you plan to come up here. So do it at home tests. They were given that out at the border. They, I had five COVID tests in two weeks just dealing with the border, uh, like going back and forth and asking questions when we were stranded there. And we it were, was crazy. It's a whole other issue. We we're dealing with 
supporting a new camper but, we just bought and that's what held us up but um it was just a pain in the butt because you couldn't call, tape. you couldn't call anybody because all the phone lines were just linked to covid hotlines so we couldn't get traction on bringing the new rv up yeah. um but yeah i full hazmats and gloves and masks and talk to me through the window without me putting a mat i'm sitting in my truck we're clearly more than six feet away and they would not talk to me until I put a mask on in my vehicle. And they're behind glass talking through glass and a mask. And then I turn around, I, I, I crossed the border three times in one day, going up there and bothering them with questions. And when I came back to the US side, each time there was a different guy at the US side, no masks, no gloves, had a cheerful conversation. Uh, and then the last guy that I talked to, he finally just said, I see this is the third time you've crossed the border today why so obviously oh yeah yeah i'm just i'm um, just running drugs across the border town you know just like everybody else is right <laughs> but, uh no i had to tell them well they don't answer the phone up there it's all linked to the covid hotlines and i said we're, we're trying to get home and trying to get answers to our questions and so i'm just coming back and forth back and forth trying to get stuff figured out he says you're an american citizen right i said yep why don't you just stay in america until canada gets their head on straight and I was like, that's a real good question, but I got to get home. I have 30 days of work to do, and this might be the only work I have all year. So this is the, might be the only time I can make a nickel all year. So we have to go up and deal with this stuff right now. So he had a good point. Like, why go? I mean, if, right. if I didn't have to work, we who knows? We might still be down there. I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's crazy. You guys, guess what? What? Our archery season opens tomorrow. And I know. I was... Happy. <laughs> okay. Let's like talk a about segue or a transition. Yeah, yeah let's talk like about. Have to get them off the. COVID yeah, or, or we'll all stay on it, right? Because we're all. It. Yeah, we're all we're all upset about it, right? Because it's totally killed all of our hunting seasons. We've but, all had horrible stories, and it's yeah. Now it's, it's time to enjoy it. It sounded to me like she was saying, "Okay, I'm sick of COVID and Canada's <laughs> regulations." But one thing really cool about Canada: really big velvet deer starts tomorrow. <laughs> it's really yes. That is correct. So why don't you guys take us kind of through what, what you do to prep to go into the velvet season? Cause not everybody gets to hunt velvet. So like we don't get to start here until September 15th. By then we don't have a chance at a velvet deer. So obviously we don't have to put in as much work, right? Cause you guys start way earlier and like, what kind of patterns are you trying to, to, to kind of follow to kind of get on a velvet deer? Uh, food is the number one thing, just like anything, you know, before that rut kicks in, it's, you're looking for any big buck it's, it's going to be the number one thing food and cover and and uh over the years i used to put out lots of cameras early in in may and june and trying to get deer patterned as much as i could early but a while back i decided it, it doesn't make any sense to do it until later in july um once you know you got the food sources because we have lots of mixed ag land lots of farmland lots of forests so there's lots of food in the forest um, lots of oil field activities. So lots of pipelines, uh, oil and gas leases that have been reclaimed with red clover, yellow clover. I mean, just food everywhere. Um, and then you add all the crop in with the alfalfa and peas and canola. Those are probably the big three. Um, and then every field edge, it doesn't even matter what crop it is, whether it's wheat, barley, um, oats, there's any spot don't get hit by the spray or any low spot that's got extra moisture anything that didn't get worked up is just going to be loaded with red clover and it's doesn't matter where 
what the crop is, there's always going to be a whitetail somewhere in there or mule deer feeding in these draws. So it's, it's literally lots and lots of driving, glassing until we figure out, all right, here's some spots we want to get some cameras out. Or if I'm hunting in the big forest, I'll just go, go out for a couple of days and, and hike the pipelines and just look for game trails and found some pretty insane spots this year and some new, new pipelines that I've never explored before. And you, you walk through there and you're thinking this is going to be, it's all moose and bear traffic because this clover is just flattened down. And I went and checked cameras a couple of weeks ago that have been up for a month, month and a half, literally all whitetail traffic where they have this waist high clover that's just completely flattened. So it's just lots of food, um, sitting back from a long distance glassing and trying to put a plan of attack in. Um, once you got, got a target buck located, you know, we don't like to get in the woods. We like to hunt the edges, stay out of the bedding area. Cause you never really can pinpoint exactly where they're bed. Just try and find out where they're coming and going from. And you know, while well, they could be bedded 50 yards, they might be bedded 400 yards in there. But, uh, once we know where they're feeding that, we'll set up the ambush there and go from there. Now with, with velvet hunting, I know like Kentucky, right. They only allow you to hunt in the afternoon. Is that the same up there? And why, why would you do that? Why would you only hunt in the afternoon? I don't, uh, hmm. I, I don't know. know. I didn't even know Kentucky was okay. like, didn't know that they used to have that with, um, well, I know Saskatchewan still has it with some waterfowl. They're like, um, I don't know if it's all the way season or half the year, but you can only hunt geese till noon and, uh, dark geese till noon that's the way it was in north dakota when i grew up but i've never heard of deer hunting only in the afternoons honestly i think that would best so like yeah sorry make the people will make the mistake of hunting in the morning yeah honestly i think that would benefit you're gonna have better deer patterning because you're not bumping them you know i used to think that get in there early no matter what you think you know if you have a safe route to get into your tree stand in the morning i just i hate morning hunting you don't know how many deer you blow when you're going in there, right? doesn't matter. I mean, what your camera stats tell you, you never know what you're pushing out of the way when you're going into your stand. The afternoon, it's obviously you can see. So um, I don't know why they would do that, especially if it's, you know, it's an archery season, right? I mean, mm -hmm. nobody's getting mistaken for deer and getting shot in the dark in the morning. So, yeah, I, it was kind of the outfitters, everybody that kind of researched or whatever, they were saying that they no morning hunting, only afternoon hunting. And I didn't know if it was because they were kind of the thing I kind of took from it was that they were bachelored up and they were on the feed in the afternoon, like or coming into the feed in the afternoon. Oh yeah. Kind of like yeah, I, Absolutely. That's the way I would see it. So is it I didn't know if you meant when the you said no afternoon or no morning hunting, if that was a state regulation or is that just the outfitters like their preference? I, I was under the assumption that it was just the outfitters preference, but everybody yeah. seemed to be that way that I even talked to like guys that were just locals too. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that's exactly the same way we do it too. Like I'm not getting velvet deer in the morning. I never have. And I never will just because you, I mean, they're on that pattern. You don't want to do anything to push them off that pattern. Um, I got some real nice deer in these oil field areas that I've found, but all I have is morning and midday pictures of them. I honestly don't know how to go in and hunt them in the morning and it's too much of a risk to go hunt them in, in the morning and bumping them out of their beds or, or wherever they're, they may be feeding. So 
that type of scenario, you know, if we don't tag out with velvet tags in the next week or so, that'll be another option for us come October because a lot of the food will be dead. The leaves will be down. Um, and then it just turns to a big, you know, you're out in the big forest and you're rattling and decoying like crazy, you know, just the script change, the, the, the tactics change. Um, cause right now, obviously rattling, you're not going to be doing that. So, but yeah, it's, that's exactly the way I would do it. I, I agree with there's guys in Kentucky that are saying we're not hunting the mornings. They're doing it right. If you ask me. Yeah. I thought you were saying that was a regulation at first. Like they weren't allowed to like turkey hunting and stuff sometimes. No, I, I miss said that. My apologies. No, it was it was more or less that the guides were. That's how they talked. Like no morning hunting, and then yeah. all yeah. the other guys were saying the same. No morning hunting. We don't hunt in the morning. We only hunt in the afternoon. I guess it makes yeah. good for a good camp because you can drink all night. And, oh yeah, that's uh, just that's <laughs> the mainstay of our bear hunt. You don't get up early. You know, that, that's a valid argument right there. You're I'm, you're in the stand at five o'clock, and you're sitting in the stand till about ten ten thirty, and maybe eleven o'clock later in June, and you're back at camp at. 11, 1130 midnight, throw a few lines out for some walleyes, fire up the fire pit, have a few whiskeys. Sun starts coming up about 3.30. Well, you go back to bed, have a nap till 8 o'clock, get up, have coffee and breakfast. You know, <laughs> That sounds like my style of hunting. <laughs> no yeah. kidding. It's, We're doing it's a nice it wrong. Change. It's a nice change of pace from doing six months in a row of geese and then all of a sudden bear season rolls in. All right, early mornings are done. We get We got late nights, big days, but we're sleeping in. It's also light out until like midnight then. So that makes it a little bit more cool to be hunting at nighttime when it's still light outside when normally you wouldn't even be near the woods at 10, 11 o'clock at night. That's awesome. I can imagine that hunting until nine, 10 o'clock at night. That would be. Well, you're hunting nice. past that sometimes. Like you said, you could be, yeah, yeah you could be sitting until 1030 at night. You know, we shoot the half hour past sunset and our shooting light tomorrow, I think is 938, 930 or 90. Yeah. That's our shooting time. Uh, wow. When I shot my, um, velvet whitetail, that was September 3rd and nine, I 10. shot them. Yep. About nine ten, and like shooting time was like nine, 11, nine, 12. Like, I mean, <laughs> 10 minutes, but, and it was I mean, it gets dark when, when it, the sun goes down, it gets dark. Um, but yeah, you, it's, it was weird then sitting out there at that time and it's still being light out. Now, Trevor, you shot a pretty big velvet deer too last year. It was a baby. Uh, <laughs> well compared, right? No. <laughs> oh, velvet one was 2018. I did shoot a good one last year. Um, but I missed him with my bow at 25 yards. Arrow hit a stick, missed him completely. In velvet. No, he wasn't in velvet then. He was hard horned then. But uh, played cat and mouse with him for the next nine days after that. And third day of rifle season, he got a bullet at 100 yards because I, I, I ran out of time because we used plants for two weeks after that. So he was 100, 170 inch four by four, or as you call him out there, at eight point, right? Yep. So. 170 inch eight point with uh, double drop main beams. The main beams curl out front and then they shoot down about six inches. So they look like drop tines, but the That's beams so are actually cool. drops. He was wicked. So, 11 inch brow tines and 12 inch G2s. And God. just just one of those deer that uh, completely lucked out. Like I put a camera out there in May 
because uh, when we were shed hunting, I found a stand of poplar trees that had about 15 or 20 elk rubs on it. I, yeah. haven't, I haven't shot an elk yet. You know, I've, I've lived here 20 years and I haven't even shot an elk because we're too busy during the elk rut when it's waterfall season. So I don't even get time to elk hunt. I was making a plan to try an elk hunt last year and I go pull that camera while she's, uh, she's in her stand and kind of have that holy shit moment when you're just, just keep pushing that forward button when you're scrolling through 5,000 pictures on a camera because it's been there for five months, right? And uh, then, whoa, one thing stops you. Like there's just one good picture on the whole camera roll. And, but I got three pictures of this guy and it was just one time. And I said, well, that's got to kill a velvet deer. I can't do anything until it's done. And uh, didn't know anything about him, but when the was right. I went and put a few cell cameras out there and had to put booster antennas on them to get them to work and uh, got permission on the other side of the property. I had access. To them. Yeah. What do you know? The next four days, it was just pinging in pictures of him. Like he just lived there, but all in the middle of the night. So I just had to get, get lucky and put in, put in time. And, but uh, took, took nine days of hunting and a week of scouting them. But it, I mean, it doesn't even sound like that much a deer like that. I, kind of think I, he deserved me to hunt him for at least two or three months. You know, it did, it happened. So, but, uh, pretty, pretty neat, unique deer. And then, the the same thing with my velvet one from 2018, that one was a completely different story. I was going out, uh, scouting for pea fields for goose season. And I, I do that every year. I just drive around, mark down the pea fields. Cause any pea field that's, there's going to be a goose or a duck hunt there doesn't matter where it's at in the county there's going to be birds in it at some time so i pull up in this pea field and bash a group of about nine or eleven bucks there and they all took off running to the bush and obviously the big one was last he was down at the bottom he stood there looked at me and i just saw that frame and you just get 10 seconds to look at him and say wow okay i'm not looking for geese anymore now it's time to figure out how to hunt this thing so i mean that's the hardest you can do is find the big one. Right. And then you got to get permission. So luckily I got permission the next day. And then, uh, after that, it was literally 21 days of driving to that field, which was 70 miles away from home every night. I was up there by eight 30 and sat there till 11 o'clock at night. Um, glass and that thing coming out of the forest, going to his feeding area. Didn't have to hunt the feed, but I could hunt the, cattle pasture and the, and the forest that he was bedding in. So I had to find that transition where he was crossing through without getting too close to the bedding area and 21 days of watching him coming and going. And, you know, when a car drove by watching what escape routes he took, all that little stuff just played into it. And, uh, ended up having him at 40 yards on the first day of the season. I didn't hunt. I stayed out because the wind was wrong. Second day had him at 40 yards and 15 yards, but both times I couldn't shoot because I had 10 bucks around me. Couldn't even move, just sat there. That's and uh, <laughs> I did get drawn on him. I did get drawn on him at 42 yards down the, down the cut line. And then his turn broadside had that magical bush right in front of the vitals. So I had to let him go, watched him walk away. And, but having all, all 13 of those bucks around me, like that was my biggest thing. You know, you see I'm wearing the Ozonics hat. I'm not going to turn this into a commercial or anything, but if guys are serious of taking their um, whitetail hunting to the next level, it's something they definitely want to research because I bought that product uh, two days after finding that deer. 
because I knew I needed to, I wanted to have everything that could possibly help me do what I needed to do. I had 13 bucks. I had a bachelor group of 13 bucks I had to beat to kill one deer. And, and, and it worked. So I mean, day three, I had him at 22 yards and he came out by himself. He was the last one in line and all the other ones walked right by me. So when it was all said and done, he went, uh, 210 and change gross and he netted 201 and five eights or 202 and five eights, something like that. Oh, that's not No, he's officially the number seven all time non typical velvet whitetail. He's actually going to, there'll be a picture of his deer and score and everything published in uh, the new open young archery um, record book that's coming out. Which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Not, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, Pope and Young called me and sent me a letter. They wanted me to attend the awards banquet in Reno this year, and obviously we wanted to go. Yeah. But but it's not worth a three week holdover due to COVID. Right. <laughs> I mean, we were going to be in the states. I could have packed up the deer and brought it down, but it's a matter of well, do we drive it to Vegas and then I mean we leave it there, or they said if you can get it, get your mounts to any Cabela's in the states, Cabela's Bass Pro. They will ship it and insure it. But if you send it from anywhere else, it has to be insured yourself. So it, it would involve us getting export permits to bring it out of Canada, bring it down, either drive it right to Reno ourselves. And this, I mean, I did it right. I spent 3000 bucks on the mountain, had it put on a big custom barnwood pedestal, you know, for the floor mount. And, and uh, it would have been nice. I think I probably like, they called me a couple of times and said, you're, basically going to win you know it was the biggest whitetail in the last three years or two years whenever they come up with the book you know the, the biggest velvet whitetail taken in the last three years so it would have been been pretty neat to have it on display you know the taxidermist and the animal deserve to have the work that they showed off because the guy did amazing work with it that's amazing that's crazy well congratulations you, in our book, you won, right? <laughs> oh, That's I, incredible, I, dear. I didn't think when you were telling the story, I didn't think it was that big. Like the way that you, you kind of like not downplayed. I thought it was like humble eyes the, the the number one the number one velvet kill in Alberta with the bow is two hundred four even, and I was an inch and a half or two and a half inches off of that, and I got to see this deer more than a half mile away. And the whole time I was thinking, this is a 220 inch deer, 230. Like I got this record smashed, you know, but he was so heavy. It took away from his time length. He had 54 inches of mass um, or 50, 52 inches of mass, but his time length, he didn't have a time over 10 and a half, but lots of extra points. Like he had uh, four brows on one side, three on the other. And like a, I think the typical, the net typical score on them as a five by five was 177 or 178 with 28 and change of extras. So God. literally a game of inches. I mean, I wasn't upset that I didn't get it, but when I, the first thing, I, I mean, honestly, when I, when I walked up to him, cause he only went 40 yards and tipped over. And, and when I walked up and it was like, damn it, his beams are too short. I'm not getting the record, you know? Oh, That's the first thing that hit my head. It's like, you know what? This is an awesome deer. It was an awesome hunt. But right away, I was like, he's not number one. I'm going to miss it. Obviously, that's not the reason why I was hunting them. I mean, it's a deer of a life. I've, I've had three deer. I've had one, one in the 190s and one that was 
right around that 205, 210 mark as well. Um, back in 2010 and 2012 that I bow hunted for, you know, the entire season. And then they were both shot by guys out of their pickup road hunting while I was in my stand. And that's I know that feeling going, going that route, you know, like that question you asked me, like, well, why'd you decide to go into the big game for years? I always thought it's too stressful. It's there's not enough guarantees. Like with goose hunting, when you have permission on the X, there's a 99% chance you're going to kill a limit when the weather conditions are right. You know, the geese are coming back, but with a deer, you don't know what he's going to do. Once it hits a certain point, once that rut kicks in, it's fair game. The rules are out. Um, and that happened to me twice in a matter of three seasons. And I was like, I'm never going to be a deer hunting guide. I don't want to do what I like hunting on my own. Um, but, uh, that all changed, you know, maybe it's cause I'm older now. Now I'm in my forties instead of in my twenties, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, with the, with the goose hunting, the run and gun never changes on that. I mean, that's a high stress thing. You're 60 miles an hour everywhere you go down every gravel road, chasing birds, chasing farmers, chasing competing hunters, you know, and, and now that I'm older, I realized, you know what? Deer hunting is a lot less stressful than goose hunting. A lot less. Doesn't even compare. Doesn't even. The water, the, water. the waterfowl hunting world is something else. The oh, stress it's, it's insane. That, that'll get me pissed off more than COVID and, and our liberal <laughs> government right now. If we want to, we're not going to go that way though. No. <laughs> it's probably the last, best not. <laughs> the last 10 years. I mean, if anybody's been doing it for a long time, they've seen the changes in the waterfall world and it's, it's, ugly. it's just ugly. It's crazy. It's absolutely, yeah. we'll just leave it at that. So what, yeah. so what yes. is your guys' game plan for tomorrow as far as, you know, starting to get, you know, the season starts tomorrow. So do you guys have some type of game plan, how you're going to try and get on a deer tomorrow afternoon or. We got our deer yeah. picked out. You want to talk about yours? Yeah. So we found the deer that I'm going after tomorrow on like the first week of July. I think it was. July 2nd. We seen them. <laughs> yeah. It was early. So it was like, yeah, the first week of July we spotted them, um, doing our nightly scouting, like the early, like early summer, like that. I mean, July is like when you're going to get out and start looking where you know where the food is. Um, so you're just driving, looking for the fields with food, looking for the deer. And we spotted this deer and he had a, he had a buddy with him that were both really nice deer, but man, he, we pumped the brakes on this guy pretty quick. And, um, we were able to get permission on a field across like across the way from where we had, where we had spotted them originally. And, um, that really worked out because that actually ended up being where he lived, <laughs> um, was the field across the way. And that in turn was even better because the field that he was originally in that we spotted, I went and asked for permission on that and got denied. Um, so I was also like, I just, they, they weren't, they wanted to let the deer eat. <laughs> eat the feed and drink the water and whatever they they like to watch the animals so the guy lets us shoot ducks and geese but yeah not, not the deer not the deer the field we like to let the deer stay there but it, and it's right by the highway and deer are getting whacked oh whacked all, all the time. time all the time so um yeah so we kind of laughed about that because then i was like well we we actually went to go ask for permission one day they were home so a couple weeks went by and we were on our way back from somewhere. It was last minute and Trev was actually sleeping in the car. And I woke him up as we passed these folks place. And I was like, Hey, just turn around and get back and go. Like, it looked like there was a car there. 
go see if they'll give us permission. So pulled in there, asked for permission. It was pretty quick. No, I was like, Oh, it's a good thing. We got permission where it counts because after we kept doing our homework and scouting the area. And I mean, this is, you know, putting a lot of miles on the vehicle driving every night you're going out and, you know, when the conditions are right and, um, looking for them and we kept spotting them, kept spotting them, kept spotting them. And then, um, Trevor went in and put some cameras up on some of the places where we were seeing them, where he thought would be a good place. And we ended up um, getting the first daylight picture of them. It was the very first morning. Like 16 days. It was like 16 days later, though, I feel like. No, it was the day later, within a day of hanging the, the first That camera. we got the daylight picture yep, of that them? that was the next morning. Okay, yeah. for some reason, I was thinking it was closer to the 18th of July, but it was it was quick. We got a daylight picture of them. We got several uh, nighttime pictures of them. And then we were also getting a lot of pictures of everything else from elk and moose and deer and bear, mule deer. I mean, so you get a little bit of everything. You never know what's going to pop up, but you keep, you get notifications, you get all excited. And then, and then we didn't get any pictures of them for a while, but we did, we were able to, to get visuals on them and watch them, um, sit on the road and watch them spotting scope and trying to figure out where he's coming and going from, which I really didn't get that even nailed down until this last week here, um, where he showed up closer than we've seen him this far, like thus far. So, we got the, um, yeah, kind of got the 411 on where he was. And Trevor made a guess based on some pictures that we had of where he thought he was betting, like where his betting area was. And um, he was he was pretty damn close to, to what he thought, too. So it really worked out. So now we've got an idea and I won't give away all Trevor's tactics, but he has, he has ways of figuring stuff out, but he's, he's really big into his maps. Um, and he's taught me a lot of stuff about as far as, um, looking at different, um, the different topography of the land to just figure out what these deer are doing, but he was able to look at some of that and he got really got it nailed down. So tomorrow the plan is early, um, we've got good weather and a decent wind tomorrow. So we're going to go in, um, hang up, uh, my stand tomorrow in the morning, um, like early, like not real early morning, but, um, late morning, we're going to go out, hang the stand back and then I'll finish work and do some stuff and, um, get ready for the evening hunt and just, so we're kind of doing a hanging hunt, but little bit of a break in the afternoon um but we're gonna be set up pretty close to where we've seen them this week and hopefully our plan pays off like it did last year and everything comes together i mean kind of the same thing you're able to figure out where they're coming and going you know you can get a a good location set up um for when you think they're going to come out to feed where they're coming out last year Um, we actually were so good on the location that, uh, my buck literally walked right under my stand, um, out to the field. So, um, we may not get that lucky this time, but if he's within 15, 20 yards of it, I think we're going to be pretty good. So now is he going to tell you if he sees it this time? 
<laughs> we never even finished that story. I don't feel like we I don't feel like we got to that whole part about um Trevor being a huge joker and how he tries to scare the shit out of me on a daily basis and play pranks and whatnot. But um yeah, I I'm gonna be I'm gonna be expecting something like right, you gotta step step your game up there, Trev. No, you know, you know what's going to happen is, well, like the reason where if if I had to pick one way to hunt whitetails early like this would be the hang and hunt. I've killed all my whitetails like that within the first one or three days, um, with the exception of that 200 incher I had. You know, I had to let them go. I stayed out on the first day, passed on them on the second day, got them on the third day, then the 178 point last year. Um, had the opportunity of arrow hit the stick on the first day, you know, the hanging hunts are just deadly. And the only reason we're not doing that for her right away tomorrow is because, well, I have to hunt too. I have to get to my stand in time. Right. So I don't want to be late, get to my spot. So <laughs> early to set hers and then sneak out and then she can sneak back in. Cause then she knows where it is. So I'm not going in there by myself <laughs> have the hope that she can find it on her own. Right. So, but uh, yeah, that deer, He's thrown, he's made me guess. I mean, been trying to figure him out for seven weeks now. And the last four days, we've gotten so much info from him, but I pulled my hair out so hard until last night. Like we've, this thing's just been a ghost. I think I over scouted him. I told her that I've had five cameras in this area and literally it would be a nighttime pick every seven days. Uh, he ghosted us for two weeks and then I had to hike in and pull a couple cameras because there was no cell service on him. And a couple pictures of them just walking by every 10 days. And I was like, there's just no info here for the field edge. There's so much food. Like, where's he's at? We got to find where his bedding area is so we can get close to where he's coming out. And that's going to be our best shot. And then all of a sudden, what, today's Tuesday. So uh, Friday, we saw him and his buddy buck out in the middle of this canola field Friday. Same thing. He was 200 yards away from that spot on Saturday. And this is it. 915. We still got a half hour of light. So I don't like to get out there too early because I don't want to um, you know, spook stuff away. But the deer are already out in the field. If if, if a, you know, mature whitetail bucks like these are already three, four hundred yards out into a crop field, that's you know, this is a 320-acre canola field against the forest. It's big, it's a mile long by a half mile wide. And these deer are already three, four hundred yards away from the forest. That means they're out there early you know, we're, we're probably an hour late, maybe an hour and a half late. So we kept pushing it back a half hour each day, trying to get there. And, and, uh, they were literally 600 yards from where I thought they were betting on Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday and Monday, he's right behind the farmyard, right? Like right in the acreage where the people live, you know, within 200 yards of the forest there. And I'm thinking, what is this deer doing? Like, is, is he's acting like a mule deer? He's betting in this four foot tall canola all day. Like, he might not even be going into the woods. So, I went. Uh, I got aggressive yesterday. I said, it's two days before a season. He's got to tell us where he beds. And I had a pretty good idea because with this canola, you can see the draws in the field, and the canola makes a nice yellow flower when it's ripening. So the flower turns into the, you know, branches off into the canola pod. And, uh, they like to eat on the, the young green stuff. So in these lower spots, 
the canola still had the flowers, big, broad green leaves at the bases, nice little flowers on top. And he's just browsing in that stuff. And then the next day I get out there. Um, I said, I got to be here by eight 30 to see this thing come out of the woods. I was there at eight 35 and he's already 200 yards out an hour and 20 minutes before dark. He's already out in the field feeding like this deer's coming out early. So that is just great news, right? I mean, it's, and he's by himself. He doesn't even have his buddy with him. You got one deer to be one nose, one set of eyes and he's coming out early and should be a no brainer. Just got to know where he's betting. But for the last two days, he's been close to the house. So I park my truck, one of the other local farmers down the road, he drives by the deer, looks at him. He keeps going, you know, and this deer's 250 yards off the gravel road. I park, I'm watching him, turn the truck off, film him for a bit, drive up the road a hundred yards, try to get his attention. Like I'm trying to get this deer's attention to make him do something, to tell me something. I'm trying to scare this deer into the forest, you know, something nobody would ever do, but He's out there in broad daylight. I don't want anybody else seeing him two days before a season. You know, odds are you know, the landowner's a good friend of ours. He's not going to let anybody else in there. But when it comes to big deer, you know, people don't care about permission sometimes. So um, I literally parked the truck and watched him. And he just looked at me and he kept feeding, get out of, the, slam the door, honk the horn. He doesn't even lift his head. Like he can't scare this deer. I start walking down the road my feet in the gravel trying to do anything to make him just get alerted and run back to the woods show me something tell me where you go and it was actually a there was a hawk that was dive bombing a few he was more concerned about the hawk chasing mice in this low <laughs> he's probably flushing mice out of the canola and the hawk is feeding around dive bombing them and, and uh then i finally started started walking back towards him and he got a little edgy and then he finally ran to the woods he didn't do the full jumping tail flagging but he stayed in the low spot and it covered up half his body and showed me exactly where he went, showed me his card. So the last two days, I mean, we're going to go check it tonight and see if he does the same thing again tonight. Um, but the last two days, it's, it's about as good as it could be as long as he doesn't come out too early and decide to move 600 yards, you know? Yeah. And that was one of his tactics that I wasn't going to give away because it sounds a little crazy, but if you want to know where the deer are going and you can do that without like, you know, spooking the deer, but just, you know, it's normal activity. People are walking, people are doing whatever, you know, you go to farmers going in and out of fields. So, um, yeah, just something like that to get him to move and go. And he went right where we thought he came from when we saw him the night before, which was earlier in the night, like about the same time. And we actually were watching the field and I was walking through my binos and he had the spotting scope and I pointed, yeah, I pointed out um, a deer to him and I was like, well, I'll give a little backstory. She's notorious for picking out inanimate objects. Oh, there's a moose. There's a moose. No, that's that's always looking for something. No, that's a hay bale. No, that's, no, that's just bush. That's just stick. She's probably, that's 80% like that. But then every once in a while, Oh yeah. Good eye, babe. That is, that, yeah, that is, that's a critter over there. Yeah. I got eagle eyes. So if it, it a, looks like an animal, I'm looking for it. It was the same thing. And I, I already scanned the area like three times and she says, that looks like antlers right there. I was like, no, that's just some fireweed or ragweed or whatever it is. It's just some kind of weed sticking out of the canola. I already looked at it. I keep looking. 
And then this horse comes up on the other side of the field. Baby white, white horse. White horse, half mile away. She's like, what's that white thing? That's a horse, babe. Like, right. Then I'm getting like kind of annoyed. Like, just start looking for deer. That's a horse. He's been here all week, you know? And then, then she says, what if I told you those antlers I saw looks like my buck standing right next to us right now? And yeah, sure. Shit, there he was. <laughs> 250 yards he did he like turned window. around and he looked down and he was like, like yeah that's him yep that, that looks like yep <laughs> and that was 50 yards from the spot that i told her no those are just weeds those are just weeds yeah and this was and this was the closest to to the road that we've seen him like you know um with the naked eye um because he'd been like he said these fields are huge they're a mile long and half mile and there are a lot of rolling hills and it's very deceiving because these fields look flat. They're absolutely in no way flat. They just appear to be that way, but there are like two big draws that go through this field. And one of the draws is where we were getting them on camera like earlier in July. And then, and that would be like at nighttime. So he's definitely this little pattern of how he, you know, kind of works this field. And then at night he was coming out of the, the draw that's closer to the road and feeding out towards where we had seen him closer to like the nine fifteen mark. So 45 minutes, he's made his way half mile across that field and half mile down the road. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was fate that we came, you know, this week and came a little bit earlier and caught him where we did. And it gave us the, gave us the, like basically the ammunition the next day for Trevor to go in and make that move where he went back in the woods and he, you know, already had an idea that that's where he was betting at based on some of the pictures and stuff that we had gotten. It's ridiculous how much the, the phrase timing is everything is with these stupid deer. Like yep. you th you're thinking you're doing, you can work so hard, so hard and literally learn so much in five seconds of what an animal does and you don't, you're going to get that five seconds. Like you just need to see where they come out or where they go in to give you an option, just one piece of Intel on, on, you know, all right, how can I make this plan work now? You know, and you could sit at a field for three hours, one night and do that for a week straight and not get it. And then all of a sudden you're just driving, you're coming home from Walmart one day. Well, let's just drive by the field and see what's going on here. And then all of a sudden there he is, he steps out and you just catch it at that right time, you know, that happens to me more often than not where you just go with your gut and like that was the first time we've seen this deer out in the, the wide open like we went by it was a month after finding this deer and said let's just go by and check it out and what do you know there he was like he's already out in the field like we, yeah we did that on a hunch i mean we would have went that way anyways because if there's potential that, you know like that there's going to be whitetail in the field we're going to go check it out and see you know where we're seeing the deer but if you take a left and go up the road two miles and go around the block the other way and you could be 30 seconds too late when you come back like it's it's yeah. that tight of a game like it's lots of luck just finding them things i yeah, hear you so I've, I've learned how to drive really fast on gravel and you know we fly around everywhere you're just like on a mission at night sometimes to you know try to gather as much intel as you can in that like that last like power hour where all the animals are out feeding and you know that probably goes into the whole not hunting in the mornings and stuff too because the animals are way more consistent in the evening so being able to pattern them like that 
Gotcha. Well, sounds like you guys know your tactics. You guys know each other's plans really well, but there's a little new something we're rolling out, especially when we talk with couples or pairs. And that's how well do you know your hunting partner? (laughs) (laughs) So my first question, I'm going to ask Trev, how well do you know Steph? What is the one thing she hates the most after the kill? After the kill? After the kill. After the kill. Um, probably my photo taking skills. <laughs> Men can't photograph women. They want That's... to be photographed. <laughs> oh, oh right? that is so perfect. It's I know so how perfect. to take a picture of a deer. You're trying to highlight the deer, but nope. Not with women, not with no. my wife. It's all, you got to make the wife look as pretty as the deer. You know, well, that's not, well, that wasn't even possible last year. So well, let's, let's not say it's as much about looking pretty as it is him taking a million pictures. And he does because he's really big on um, his photographs with the animals and that don't have, um, you don't have shadows and stuff or you're not sitting directly behind the antlers because it, it doesn't give you a good view of the, of the deer right. because you've got like a mass behind them and you can't see all the tines and you have to be this way. And the sun has to be coming this way, or you've got shadow or the deer's shadowing the, you know, on the body of the deer. It's actually really hard to pose an animal like that, especially a big game animal. And he's like so meticulous about how you hold it. And, you know, he doesn't want you doing the, the long-term thing where you're putting the deer up in the camera and trying to make it look bigger than what it is and all of that stuff. So um, there's actually a lot that goes into it. He is super meticulous about it, but it is really hard to hold up a big, like a big game animal, <laughs> especially with like one hand and you're trying to get it just right. And he's like, okay. And then he's trying to take a picture and your arm's getting tired. Like, that sounds really bratty, but I'm telling you, I was so worn out after last year when we had found my deer. Cause one, I had been walking the field and it was really warm that morning. And I was all layered up with a sweatshirt cause it started off cold. So I was sweating my ass off. I mean, just sweat pouring down tears running down. Cause I couldn't find this damn deer in this tall pea field and, I mean, I was like heartbroken. I did not think I was going to find my deer, even though I watched where he went down. As I explained earlier, these fields, they appear flat. They're absolutely not. They're like big rolling hills. And once you get down on the ground, the topography is totally different from when you're sitting on a stand. And I watched my deer go exactly where he went and he laid down and he never got up. And I explained exactly where the deer went to Trevor and he ended up going to exactly where I told him that the deer was and finding it. But since I walked around and covered the entire mile long field, um, Trevor couldn't get a hold of me because I didn't have my phone on me or I wasn't answering the you phone. Had a phone. You didn't answer. And then when you did answer, you were already on the gravel road, pissed off walking back to the car. I was like, all right, we'll see you back at the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my deer. But yeah. Me, so- and my, me and my farmer buddy had already found the deer. So already told him i said don't tell her we're gonna have fun with this one (laughs) so um so it sounds to me based on that answer that he was spot on 
I'd say he knows yeah, you pretty well. He was. So <laughs> he was. And if you have the same question for her, it would be this. I would assume she would say the same thing that I I hate the way she takes pictures of me because I'm a big guy and it always makes the deer look small. The way she takes yeah. pictures. <laughs> it I mean, is. When, when you shoot a 100, 190 inch mule deer and it looks like a 150, I'm not happy. I mean, yeah. I am, I I don't am blame big, you. but I'm not that big. I, I hear you, <laughs> except that's not the question I was going to give her. Okay. So it's a good answer and good to know. And she'll keep that in mind this season. But for Stephanie, how well do you know, Trevor? What is his superstitions before a hunt? Oh, well, that's easy. And this all comes down to easy. She says this Islamic stuff right here. It's not really a superstition. He's not very superstitious. It is. It's science, but I don't think you're like superstitious about well, deer hunting. No, I have my, he, he doesn't do that. I have to wear the same underwear every hunt. No, or anything God, like no, that. because <laughs> he is very meticulous about cleaning his clothes and he likes to do checklists of everything that he's going into the woods with because he's making sure he has it all. And I'm not saying that, that has been um, perfect and works every time. But, if you rush me, the wheels fall off. I forget something. Yeah. If I get rushed, I forget <laughs> yeah. one or two things. But definitely, it's it's really for him. It's being completely like scent free. He's got his like process that he does with his clothes. Like he has to wash them before, like the day before the season. So yesterday was washing all of all of the camo and the scent free stuff, and then um, he goes in and he hangs all of our everything that he's wearing, everything that I'm wearing. He, he makes us like go through all of the stuff, figure out what we're taking with us. And then he goes into our Ozonics room. Um, that's got several dry wash bags and everything hanging. He gets everything hung up inside and outside you. Cause you have to do like two processes with the, um, with the whole thing. So anyways, he, he does all that. So that's kind of more like a ritual than, um, than a superstition, but okay. then that he does. And then, and I would say that too, because last year he actually forgot one of his Ozonics units and he wouldn't even go in. He forgot wouldn't even, battery. yeah, I forgot the battery. So he wouldn't even go into the woods until he had that battery. So I had to drive an hour to meet up with him where he was hunting and he had to come back out of the like from a spot and I met him because he wasn't going to hunt if he didn't have that unit to use. So I do have a question about he believes in it now. So. Of the Ozonics, like, do you, do you hunt the wind with the Ozonics or can you hunt against the wind with the Ozonics? Both. Okay. It, once you know the, understand the science of it, like we can almost turn it into a little bit of an infomercial if people want the info on it, but it's, we can do that on We're another episode too. Yeah. But it's uh, we can keep game because I want to see her lose. I I win. I'm competitive. I win so all the time. I've never lost anything ever. So we can keep going with the game. But, but yes, with with the Ozonics, once you understand it, uh, there's people that are completely against it. Like it's a gimmick. I thought it was a gimmick for the longest time. Like why are you going to spend four hundred dollars on something to kill scent? For the longest time, I thought you you do everything like you wash your clothes, you start in a box with the uh, pine branches or spray down with pine salt or dirt scent or whatever, trying to kill anything. And that dough still snorts you, you know, something, oh, thermals drop and your scent drops right in the line of the deer. You know, you, you just, 
for years, I thought you cannot beat a whitetail's nose. The only thing you can do is play the wind and hope your stand's in the right place. It's an absolute game changer. It, I would not have killed my 200 inch deer without it. You know, I had 13 noses and 26 eyeballs to beat in this bat 13 deer in one batch. Yeah. Wouldn't have done it. same thing with my deer last year. Wouldn't have done it without it, but we can go on. They're not paying me to say that. I'm just, I absolutely believe in it. I understand the science of it. I know how to use it properly. And there's so many other products out there that do the same thing at different places, but they're not equal. They're, they're like, there's, there's literally a scientific level of it that you have to understand what it actually does. Yeah. It's not, so not superstition, but it is like, but it is his superstition. Yeah. She, I don't she think drove he'll... out there and got me that battery that night and I didn't hunt. I walked out there. I got halfway to my stand and there was a doe and a fawn in front of my stand. And I walked back to the truck and just blasted the field that night. I didn't even hunt that night. Four days later, I killed that buck. I I did all the time and work and, you know, changed my clothes. And I did a new hang and hunt with that particular deer last year, that double drop main bean buck. I hung four stands in six days, did four separate hang and hunts over six days and played cat and mouse after missing them. And, and uh yeah it was staying out that one day because it was a little late or didn't have my battery was the game changer so so i was right about what i say you're right it, i think i'm right superstition we'll we'll call it you're a super tra- science tradition <laughs> yeah okay i have two more questions and one of the questions is the second to last question is what would you change in the outdoor industry? And we'll, we'll go with both of you guys. What would I change in the outdoor industry? Yep. Um, it's got to stop being so competitive between hunters. Like we are seriously our own worst enemy right now. We already have the antis against us. Um, like I'm going to take it a little serious note here now. Like it's so ridiculous. It's such a rock star kind of a big, big dink bragging contest. Everybody's trying to be something that they'll never be. Like everybody wants to be all these TV stars and YouTube sensations. Those people have already done that, you know, with Lee and Tiffany and the Drury's and, and all, everybody before them that, that already did the videotapes and the TV shows like that stuff's been done a thousand times over everybody's trying to be something bigger than they are. And it's just a big competition. Um, and, and one upping everybody it's people just need to back off and start supporting other hunters. And instead of seeing a picture of a 14 year old girl with a 200 inch deer, Oh, it's gotta be a high fence deer. Right. You know, just start, everybody goes negative on it. It's, there's just too much negativity and, and people pissing in the wind and bringing everybody down and it just works against the whole industry um we don't have any hunting channels on tv we don't watch any of that stuff i I just get furious when i watch it it's all granted i get it you got to have advertisers and every or uh, um you got to do the advertisements for for your sponsors and stuff but that's all it is it's all it seems to be is commercialized and it's yeah, there is lots of products that help make people successful. That's a big part of it, but you don't need to bring down everybody else because of what bow they shoot. Like it's the whole Ford Chevy Dodge thing or Hoyt Matthews. You know, well, you don't shoot this. That's this, this stuff's better than that. This is better than that. It's just too much fighting. You know, that's the one thing I would like to see is just, it's, it makes it so much stressful when you, 
you take the negativity out, enjoy it that much more. It's well said. I've, I've honestly stopped looking at face. I haven't looked at Facebook in two weeks. It's probably the longest streak I've got. And I just get mad looking at that scrolling through the hunting pages in the, in the goose hunting worlds. Obviously it's gotten, oh, it's the, Hey, it's gotten I, I made it, I made it five years without Facebook and it was wonderful. Oh, you're so good. You're such it, a it good person until this <laughs> bow hunting league came up and it's the only way to participate. So that's literally like the only thing I have on mine. I refuse to look at anything. Yeah. How yeah, about Steph? Yeah. I mean, my sentiments are pretty much the same. I just, um, you know, I just wish that people would show the real side of the outdoors, like, you know, just be real about what you're doing and be honest about it. And, um, I think it's, really important for people that are on social media to not only show, um, respect for the wildlife, which is huge. And there's so much of that that goes on. Um, you know, that puts a taste in people's mouths that might be a little bitter, um, towards the hunting community, um, where, whereas otherwise they may um, be supportive of it, even though they may not partake in it. So it's really important um, for us to, um, keep things clean and again, just show respect for the wildlife, um, in your pictures on your social media or whatever it may be. If you're, you know, you can post whatever you want. That's totally up to you. You can say whatever you want to people, you can do whatever you want, but it really is a reflection of, you know, the type of person that you are if you really don't care what other people think, because in the long run, it affects everybody, especially in hunting, because there are so many people out there fighting against us and, um, you know, the rights that we have, and you see people getting more and more rights stripped away all the way down to game cameras, not being able to be used and all kinds of, it's the little things, but they're going to keep picking away and picking away until, you know, there's no hunting season. Um, so it's just really important for all of us to be stewards of the land, respect the farmers, respect, um, you know, anyone that's given you permission and, um, try to help the people that are interested in getting in the outdoors, um, do what you can offer what advice. And, um, you know, like Trevor said, just be respectful, be happy for people. Um, no matter, no matter what they're shooting, if it's legal, then it's okay in my book. If it's legal. As long as yeah. it's legal. if it's legal, then who are you to say that that's not good enough for them? Or, you know, that might be the only opportunity they get to ever shoot a deer if it's a spiker or if it's a doe or if it's maybe not the biggest buck that you've ever seen or the youngest or the oldest. Everybody has different, um, you know, different scenarios that they hunt in. And so we can't all, um, you know, be shooting world-class deer. Um, I mean, it would be great if everybody could, but a lot of people, um, you know, have different ways of hunting. So they're, they're in it for the meat, then that's what they're in it for. And Absolutely. I, because we like to live off the land. I mean, we don't go to the grocery store to buy steaks ever. Our freezers are full of the, you know, the animals that we hunt and go after. So to each is their own, as long as it's legal. 
Absolutely. Buy and she'll buy chicken wings. That's about it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Gotta love the chicken wings. Nothing wrong Gotta with chicken, chicken wings. Yeah. So my last and final question, guys, and you and Steph probably knows Trevor, maybe not. Uh, what drives you outdoors? What drives me outdoors? COVID. <laughs> no, that drives him crazy. COVID's, COVID's not a driving force right now. No, no I... Like I said before, I'm real competitive. I don't like to lose. I hate to lose. I won't cheat to win. I just have to win. I want to be the best that I can. Like, that's what drives me. I, I love the challenge of finding a particular whitetail and going to battle with that deer for the entire season. If I have to, um, with the waterfall thing, like it's, I hate the word. It's such a stupid word, but I hate, it's a grind, man. You know, grind if we take, put that on the list too, there's one thing we can change about the outdoor industry, take grind out of there. I hate that word, but it is, it's really a grind, but it's overused. So we can get rid of it, but the whole grind of it, like with our waterfall season, uh, doing it every day and putting number one priority is putting the opportunity for clients to get their limits every day for four to six months out of the year. Like that's what we're going. We, we don't want to shoot, you know, a couple birds, you know, everybody says, Oh, it's all about getting out camaraderie with the guys. I, I never, that's not why we, I mean, that's, that's a huge part of it. You have fun. You're with your buddies. You're with other people you just met, you know, it, it, there is a huge camaraderie part to it, but everybody is doing it to go out and shoot their guns. If that wasn't the part of it, if you didn't want to limit and you didn't want to shoot a box or two or shells, you'd have a pair of binoculars and you'd be a bird watcher, right? <laughs> Wouldn't even or, a be golfer. A shot golfer. or a golfer. You, know? <laughs> you go walk around and hit, hit golf balls at Canada geese on the golf course. It's, that's the huge part of it. Like I realized that when I started guiding goose hunts professionally when I was 22. And I remember specifically one day, I had these guys on a slam dunk hunt that had 5,000 geese and 5,000 ducks. Like it was a stupid field and there was five hunters. They could each shoot eight ducks and eight geese. So 40 ducks and 40 geese. They didn't get a limit. They shot two and a half cases of shotgun shells between five people. They were out there till 11 o'clock in the morning. Our average hunts up here last an hour. You can shoot. I mean, we've shot eight man double limits of 96 ducks and 96 geese in, or 64 and 64. I'm sorry, 64 ducks and 64 geese in an hour with good shooters before, but five guys literally shot for four hours, nonstop two and a half cases of shells. And I think they probably had, 32 of their 40 geese and maybe 25 ducks and we get back to the lodge and the girls in the kitchen got lunch ready. Oh, how was the day guys? Oh, it's pretty good. We didn't get a limit, but we got to shoot some. And that's when I realized that there are hunters that the limit isn't the important thing, but for the majority of them, it is because that's the benchmark. The limit is there to gauge the quality of day you had. And there's so many uncontrollables, just like everybody knows there's, there's with weather and what the animals are doing. I mean, there's so many uncontrollables that control your results. So doing this over 20 years, it's hard to sound or hard not to sound egotistical or arrogant when saying this, but when you do it for so long, 
you kind of, you know, the variables, you know, everything is, you know, when you're going to have a good day and you know, when you're going to have a bad day, very rarely do you get surprised. You just know when you're going to crank yeah. them and you know, where you're going to have a tough day and you can prep your clients for that. And I've, I've kept stats over the last 20 years of all the birds we kill and the shotgun shells we shoot and the averages for that. And over 20 years, it's an average of one shell or one bird for three shells. Every time somebody empties their gun, they're killing a bird. That's the average. You got guys that miss all the time. You got guys that are shooting doubles and triples all the time. And it ends up being one for three. So if I have five guys, they're killing five birds out of a flock. That's good. All right. We shoot eight flocks like that. And we're done. You know, it's a quick, easy morning. Um, so to get guys in that situation, that's, that's what drives me. Like I want guys to get their limits. I want them leaving the field as happy as they can, having the maximum opportunities they have and just making for just the best experience. So they can go back to the hotel and they can call home and they can text all their pictures Ah, we did this in an hour. You know, how's, how's your day at work, buddy? You know, here's the, here's the hundred geese we killed this morning. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what drives me is, is when guys say, I don't know how you guys do this. We've been doing this for four days with you and we're beat. We can't get up in the morning. Like they're tired. How long have you been going? this is the fourth month in a row, you know, that's, that's what really feeds you when guys are appreciative and say, I, I don't know how you guys do this, you know, it's because we love it. It's that classic passion, line, passion. classic line of passion, where if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. Yep. It's exactly what it is. That's what drives me. I get tired. I get cranky. I get pissed off. I get moody. I get depressed, but I would not want another job. Like this is what I want to do until I physically can't do it anymore. So the truth, man. So the yes. truth. People don't understand it. Like I, we say it all the time. I mean, like we, nobody wants to catch fish more than we do, right? Like in the charter yeah. boat and it's the same exact thing, man. But, and when it comes down to it and you probably realize it too, is that we're really in the entertainment business. That's really what we're in, you know, and yeah. shooting and shooting limits and catching limits. Like nobody wants to catch fish more than us. Nobody wants to kill more ducks than we do. But when that happens, you know, they we're really in the entertainment business because it, that's just a bonus, but that's something that we drive ourselves to want to do is, is kill and catch as many fish as we possibly can when we're guided. Yeah. When you're uh when you're a real honest person and you have a really bad day of hunting and you feel guilty about taking money from people, like that's the hardest part for me is when you bad day and you're settling up at the end of the day it's like oh by the way you still owe me 500 bucks you know like how do you say that like i just want to say like no you this sucked i'm sorry it's I, it's out of my control but this is bad this is not what you came for come back another day we do that lots like we do when i come back you get a half price hunt you know we do that a lot we and we make up for the weather we make up for mother nature being a bitch and throwing uncontrollables at us not a lot of people do that. And that's yeah. kind of one thing we take pride in, in doing is we can't control a limit. You can't guarantee it, but we want it so bad that we want to make it right for everybody. Absolutely. We're not just for the dollar. Like we want to see smi smiles and piles. I've been hashtagging that line for a while, but that's <laughs> you like to see smiles and piles. And without that pile, it's hard to get a smile, right? That's right. Absolutely. 100%. So Steph, what is, what drives you outdoors? That's a tough act to follow. I know. I, for me, it's not really the business side of it. He's been a professional outfitter for over 20 years. So for me, it's just still my sanity. I don't know. I love being in the outdoors. So it's just a way to 
connect to nature on a different level and disconnect from the daily bullshit, <laughs> you know, get away, escape, uh, especially in these times. It's even like, I feel like it's just so important for people to go outside, and enjoy nature, kind of not think about all of the craziness in the world. Easy enough. I love it. Nice, simple, and straightforward. So guys, again, thank you for your time. I'm glad you guys jumped on here. It's good to get you on here, Trev. That way, you yeah, know, thanks for not, having us. we're not just putting the highlight on Steph again. You know, I don't want that competition thing causing an issue down the road. Oh, no, right. it's, 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 there's no more, there's no more rapid fire couples questions. Like that's it. <laughs> He's like, well, was probably, the winner determined? It's not, it's not even a game. Like where's I'll, the rest I'll, of the list. I'll Listen. tell you what. When you guys go out and you guys get those deer on the ground, you guys come back and tell us a story, and I'm going to have about 20 of them lined up in reference to it. <laughs> okay. We're planning on having two bucks tagged out by Saturday. That's my goal. My, he actually biggest... bet he put money on that, not like in a substantial amount, but it was a bet. He's like, I'm putting money in that we're both tagged out by Saturday. So. All right. Well, I expect, uh, we'll see. <laughs> I expect messages my... Sunday. So we can my biggest it. fear is Be checking in. My biggest fear is I get the call earlier, the text. I got them, and I'm shit, now I <laughs> my stand. My night's over. You know, I'm going to be done on opening day. I don't even get the hunt. So, so that'll be question that. number one. How well do you yeah. know her? Did she beat you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, we're going to stay tuned and really keep track with this because I can't wait to see them suckers hit the dirt. So we wish you guys both the best of luck and. uh that comes with a tad bit of jealousy because we still got a couple of weeks to go down here. Just keep that in mind. You're doing this for us in mind and spirit and however you want oh, to look it's at all it. all for you guys. That's why we yep. do it. Right? That's, 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 exactly. what, drives that's what drives us outdoors. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. There it is. That's why you Killing guys are our favorite. For you guys on the East coast. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hey guys, did I tell you I wore my mud boots today because the bullshit's getting thick. <laughs> <laughs> all right well mud boots she calls them rain boots in ohio yeah yeah well same thing (laughs) down there it's all grass and big deer so i get that right there's no deer in ohio don't you guys know that (laughs) right uh good times all right well we'll be looking forward to those messages so we can schedule the follow-up and get the story on that we really want to see if this goes down him or her that's top of the list now and uh, for everyone listening, you guys really need to tag along and follow this story. I got a feeling it's going to get really hot in the next week. And I'm not talking about anything but the deer woods. So stay tuned, follow along, and thanks for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive. <laughs> <laughs>